Hey, let me open us in prayer, and we're going we're gonna to get busy on this text. All right, Lord, thank you so much for your word that's living and active. Um, I pray that today as we, we look at this letter from your servant Paul to the Philippian church, that you would just open that up to us, that you would speak to us in and through the word, that it would be more than informative for our cognition, but it would be transformative in our hearts and in the way that we live. Amen. So let me read um, the text for today, which is from Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is the second chapter, just verses one through four. Um, But that's meaty enough. Let's see what we can do here. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, just some light reading. Okay. Therefore, if there is any consolation of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, it's an old axiom, you've probably heard a million times, but anytime a verse starts with therefore, you need to ask what the therefore is there for, like what is that referencing? And so just a little recap of what's going on is, is that Paul is writing this letter to the Philippian church from a prison cell. He is writing to this church because not only are they worried about him and his outcome, but but they're worried about their own persecution and suffering that they're going through at the hands of the Roman Empire and the pagans who live among them in that city. Some of them, uh, their own family members and friends before they began following Jesus. And he's writing to encourage the church that they might keep partnering together in the work of Jesus who is, in Paul's estimation and mine, the hope of the world. And at the end of chapter one, he reminds them that the suffering that they're enduring for trying to live like Jesus in a pagan world, he's reminding them that that suffering isn't wasted, that Jesus will redeem it all, and that their acts of love and sacrifice for others will have a lasting meaning. But now he turns his attention to three main ways of being, uh, of being human in the world for people who want to follow Jesus. And what I'm going to do for us is just briefly explain what these three ways of being are, what Paul might be trying to say, what he's definitely not trying to say, and then we're going to move to applying those things in our life, okay? Does that sound good? Are we on the same page there? Okay, so uh, the three main ways of being that Paul is talking about in these four verses of Philippians chapter 2 are experiencing the love of God, experiencing the love of God, okay? Unity of focus in following Jesus, unity of focus in following Jesus, and humility. Those are the three main ways that Paul is encouraging people to be. In the opening line, Paul draws upon the foundational practice of Jewish and Christian faith, and that is thanksgiving, 
thanksgiving, giving thanks to God. In the Greek text it reads, therefore, if there is any encouragement that you've received in Christ, any consolation of love of Christ that you've experienced, any fellowship in the Holy Spirit that you've experienced, any affection and compassion that you've experienced, that's, that's what he's saying, or in the Greek it could also read like this, therefore, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation of love, since you have experienced fellowship in the Holy Spirit, since you have experienced affection and compassion from God, and in the ends, no matter how you, how you parse the, those ifs in the English language, or is, it, or is it if or is it since, either way, they both are getting at the same reality, and it's this, that Paul is not so much saying if you've received encouragement and love and fellowship of the Spirit, as if anyone in his audience would say, no, actually, I haven't experienced those things. That's not what he's getting at. He, he's saying, um, he's encouraging the Philippians to recall, to draw upon the experiences that he knows that they've had already. Encouragement from Jesus, love from the Father, and experience or fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And based on that experience, he says, let's be unified in our common focus on Jesus and his way in the world. Let, let, let trying to be like Jesus in the world, let's like make that what we're focused on and what we're about. Let's not be divided with bickering and backstabbing and infighting. Like life is hard enough when we're not divided amongst ourselves. So let's be, be, be rejoicing in what God has done for us. Let's be unified in our pursuit of following Jesus. And, and the type of the unity that Paul is talking about, this is important for us as individualists in uh, the 21st century, he's not talking about uniformity. He's not talking about uh, everyone who follows Jesus needs to talk the same way or dress the same way or worship the same way or think the same way. So Nathaniel, you can relax. You can be original. And what he is saying is that our lives are to be about the same general thing, which is following Jesus in the world. An example comes to mind of uh, my, my first year or two in the Coast Guard. I joined when I was 19, and my first unit was a 180-foot buoy tender, this ship out of Seattle, Washington, and it had a crew of about 56 people. So there I am with 55 other people, and I, I grew up in Gig Harbor, Washington, um, not, not the most diverse place in the world, and uh, I get on this ship, and there are people from everywhere in, in our country and including the Pacific Islands and all kinds of stuff. So we had this guy, Big Will, he was an ex-Marine and he would always correct me because you're never an ex-Marine and he was 220 pounds and he was loud and way too enthusiastic for me and he would say, Eldritch, we don't have problems in the Coast Guard, we have solutions and that was his whole motive in life, like that was how he carried himself. Um, then we had this guy, Dave from Montana, rural Montana, isn't all Montana rural? Well, most of it, yeah, but anyway, he was really rural, and uh, he hardly said anything, um, but he could kill you with a look, and when he did speak, everybody listened. That, and then there's this other guy, I'm not gonna say his name, because who knows if he would kill me, but he was banned from Port Angeles, Washington. One time we pulled in, and he got in a bar fight with some local there, and he put his thumb in the guy's eye socket, and the police said, you can never come off the ship here again. So these are the types of people that I was meeting, and you know, there's different ethnicities and ages, and it was crazy, and there we are on a 180-foot steel, basically a washtub with engines on it for a common mission. 
One day, we're over 100 miles off the coast of Washington, and we had an engine room fire on board. And everybody knows fires aren't good. Like, if there's a fire in your house, you should run. And if there's a fire on your block, you kind of get out of the way. But what do you do when you're 100 miles offshore? And the thing that you're floating on is steel. And the fire's in the middle of that steel. Like, you have to either put it out really fast, or you have to abandon ship, because basically you're on a, like a floating barbecue that's getting hotter and hotter and hotter. Um, and what happened was with this 56 different Motley crew people is that we had all drilled, 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 drilled. And as soon as, I mean, everybody's, we're playing cards and people are arguing about, you know, how many tricks they were supposed to take in spades and, you know, who ate the last whatever ice cream bar or whatever. All of a sudden we just click on and it was almost like a choreographed thing and everyone knew their role and we got the fire out and it was beautiful and wonderful. And I asked myself in preparation for the sermon, do I think we could have been more efficient, more effective if everyone had the same background, if there were like 56 Chris's or 56 of any one person? And I think absolutely not. Because each of these people brought their personality to their job and that's what made it special and unique and beautiful. And I think in the same way that the church is called to take all of our uniqueness as individuals and apply that, that uniqueness to the common goal of being Christ in the world. I think that's when the church is at her best. It's, it's when the church is not a one-trick pony. And the church is at its best when Bach is making music and Graham Greene is writing novels and Jurgen Klopp is managing Liverpool and I can't stand Liverpool and I can't believe I said that to Eric. There you go, that's a freebie for you, buddy. But he's so good. He's so good, and he follows Jesus, and he gives good hugs to his players, and they win stuff. Okay, uh, the church is at its best when scientists like Francis Colling are mapping the genome and helping to solve the coronavirus by making a vaccine, right? It's hospitals and public education. It's the lighthouse mission. It's diverse expressions while unified in common purpose of following Jesus in the world. And how do we do this? How do we get such a diverse group of individuals together around the way of following Jesus without fighting over our priorities? Well, we don't do it very well. <laughs> but Paul says that the way to pull in the same direction with all of our uniqueness is this. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. That means puffing yourself up, making yourself look better than you are. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. I mean, that's all pretty straightforward, right? Like, I, I don't know you need to expound that very much, but I do want to say this. I'm going to qualify a few things here, because I know some of you, your story, your personal story, includes instances of suffering abuse, and I need to say that when Paul writes, with humility of mind, regard others as better than yourselves, he is not saying that you are not important. He is not saying that you should put up with abusive actions or roll over when a stronger personality walks all over you with their agenda. That's not what he's saying. Paul is speaking about this word humility because in the Greco-Roman world, it was a radical concept. Humility is a kind of a virtue in, in our culture, but in the Greco-Roman world in the first century, humility was seen as weakness. 
The only time in ancient writings that we see humility used in a, any kind of positive sense is when it's used for what a good slave should be like. So it's only used for how good slaves should be. They ought to be subservient and lowly and humble. And so Paul, in Paul's day, he's never thinking that this word is gonna open the door to abuse because it was offensive to everybody. To say that you should be humble as a person who's free or um, part of the church, that is mind-blowing for people. And his point is that since we have all received the undeserved grace of Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit, we ought not to think too highly of ourselves. We ought to be about the work of Jesus, and that means laying down our pride, not our dignity, for one another. Okay, so I have briefly outlined what I think Paul's written. I've broken down the three attitudes or ways of being that are foundational to a healthy community of Jesus. And and just for recap, those things are experiencing, giving thanks for the experience of the love of God, striving for unity of focus in the way of Jesus, and humility. And Part of preaching is doing what I just did. It's exegeting a text. It's like trying to to tell you what I think Paul meant and what I think Paul means. But that's not enough. That's not enough. Because information alone is never going to transform my life and it's never gonna transform your life. Even if you think, man, that's pretty good stuff. I like what Paul's saying there. I think that's a good idea. You probably won't change. Sorry. Even if you leave today inspired or convicted that you ought to do better at being humble, you probably won't change for very long. And I'm sorry, but you know it's true. The reality is that we are always becoming what we actually love. We only actually do what we want to do. (laughs) That's <laughs> just the way it is. It's just human. Humans are inherently motivated by what we desire, not by what we think is right and wrong or true and false. That's why facts and stats and information spewed on social media is never going to change people's minds. It just props up the echo chambers for what you already think is right, but it never is going to change anyone's mind. If people knew the facts about this politician or the data about climate change or the effectiveness of masks in blocking transmission of viruses, then everything would be different, right? Well, no, that doesn't seem to work with people. The sad thing is, though, is that facts actually do matter, but they don't tend to change us. If we just tell people the fact that Jesus loves them, do we think that that information is going to overcome years of self-doubt and shame and regrets. I've not seen that be the case. And information certainly doesn't work on me that way. You know, from the time that we're little kids, people tend to ask questions like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And maybe a little bit better question is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we often ask these questions, as a parent I do it sometimes, I ask these questions with a good heart, because parents, like me, I know what it takes to survive in the world, and I want my kids to be happy, 
but I also want them to make enough money to live and to like be contributing in society. And so right now, Samara wants to do three things with her life. She's nine. She wants to be a cashier. Uh, she wants to swim with sharks. And she wants to be a teacher. I mean, she plays teacher all the time. She's gonna be a great teacher if she follows through. A um, little tyrant too. But so I find, I find that in my mind, I'm just, this is shameful. I'm just admitting this to you, that I subtly say things like, those are great goals. You know, you could be a cashier, well, like when you're in high school and going to college. And we could swim with sharks when we go to Hawaii sometimes, and then you could go to college and become a teacher, right? And so I've already ranked these things in my mind that being a cashier it shouldn't be her career, that it should be these other things because it's a, I don't know why. Uh, is it a better career? Is it more secure? Or is it uh, more prestigious? I just have already ranked them because I think that those things would be better for her in the future. But I wonder, and I don't really wonder, this is sort of rhetorical, but it's obvious, I wonder if maybe a better question is who do you want to be? Not what do you want to do or what do you want to be, but who do you want to be? Who do you want to be? After all, you can do almost anything and be a whole, flourishing follower of Jesus. So if Samara chooses a path of becoming like Jesus, she could be a fantastic cashier and a swimmer of sharks and a teacher, or whatever. It, it will be about doing whatever she decides to do with joy and service to Jesus and his kingdom. That's what happens when we make it about who we want to become. And as we look at this passage from Paul and his three elements of thanksgiving for what God has done in our lives, for unity and for humility, we won't change by merely reading the text and, say, and thinking to myself, it's great that some people have experienced encouragement in Christ or the love of God, or that those people over there have experienced the fellowship of the Spirit. It won't do just to believe that it's something that happens for some people and it is supposed to happen for me, but I haven't experienced it yet. So what do we do? Well, I, think, I think one thing we need to do is expand, expand our vision of who God is and how he acts in the world. So often, and I fall into this too, so often we think of Christ's encouragement or God's love or the Holy Spirit in very narrow terms of religious experience, like a warm feeling in prayer or something good that happened when I was doing something churchy, like teaching children's church or preaching a sermon or leading worship or running sound tech. Thank you, sound projection live stream religious experience up there. Like, I, can we only experience God when we're doing churchy stuff and religious stuff? When we're taking the sacraments, when we're being baptized? They're all great things, but I think that that's way too narrow. You know, in the screw tape letters, there's this young demon, Wormwood, and he's being mentored by a senior demon, screw tape, who is teaching Wormwood how to discourage a young Christian. And Wormwood is all focused on the religious things, and, and Screwtape says, ah, you're a beginner. But let me tell you the real way that you want to discourage your young Christian. Don't let them read a really good book for, for that book's sake. Don't let them enjoy a good conversation or a sunset. 
See, it's counterintuitive for those of us who have been trained to think that God only reveals himself through narrow religious means. But what the screw tape letter is rightly onto is the fact that true beauty and true joy and goodness and grace and life and death, these are all gracious gifts from God in their own way. Therefore, if you had any encouragement from a friend or a neighbor, a family member or a coworker, a spouse or a child, relative or seemingly random encounter, then take that as encouragement from Christ for your day. It's okay to do that. You're not breaking a rule. If you've received any love in prayer or outside playing, in worship or at a concert from your favorite secular band, it's okay. God can be in those places too. When you experience the awe and wonder when you're enjoying creation, rejoice because God is on the move in your life. Following Jesus is to be experienced. And that experience with God is not relegated to what happens in a church building or a feeling we get or don't often get, right? Let's be honest, when we pray or reading our Bible. So now that you're expanding your view a little bit of Father, Son, and Spirit, how have you experienced encouragement from God recently? Love, presence, someone being present to you, God being present to you. How have you experienced goodness? And are you able to receive that as a gift from God, not just random happenstance? Once we have in our minds and our hearts an experience of God, in our lives, then Paul encourages us toward unity in Christ through humility. Again, information and moral commands are not enough. They're a starting point. We have to be pointed in the right direction, but we're only going to do what we love to do. We won't change by thinking we should be unified. We should be more humble. We won't change by wanting to want to be more humble and unified. We won't change by considering the techniques it might take to become more humble. We're only going to change if we desire unity in Christ more than unity for its own sake. We'll only change if we desire a vision for life of humility rather than a vision for life of power and privilege or having my slice of the pie. And I guess the question that I need to ask, because I've been asking myself, is well, there's a lot of times I don't want those things. I don't desire them as much as I desire what I want. So what if we don't desire unity and humility? Well, to some degree, I, I, I suspect that all of us are resistant to unity in Christ. I suspect that all of us are resistant to true humility because it means giving something up. And I've spent, and you've spent most of your life like, trying to protect what's yours, trying to make a path in this world where everything kind of seems like it's against you, right? So like, this is a huge shift in mentality. I mean, think of it this way. If it were possible in our own strength to do these things, then Jesus would not have needed to die on our behalf. So it's kind of like, not a shock. It's okay. Like, you don't have to feel ashamed for not, not desiring these things. If it were easy in our own strength, you wouldn't have most of the New Testament letters constantly encouraging followers of Jesus to be unified and humble because they would already be. So what if being honest, what if we really don't want to live humbly? Well, part of the good news 
is that your salvation is not in question about that. You don't trust in your behavior or your feelings of salvation. You trust in Jesus. And because Jesus humbled himself and died on our behalf, we can be saved through faith in him, not faith in our feelings, and not faith in our faith, and not faith in our desires. That's part of the deal. Like, that's one of the core of Christianity is grace. Like, let's not forget that. The second, if we change according to our desires, if change occurs based on desire more than information, then how can we change our desires? How can we change our desires? Well, we're shaped. We're shaped. We are people who are always being shaped. And your desires and my desires are always being shaped. What I consume shapes me. Shapes my hunger, my appetites. Who I spend time with shapes me. Who I look up to shapes me. This is why, oh man, a good biography from a person that you really look up to can be so powerful. (laughs) Our desires are shaped by the stories we love and by the story we think we're living in. That's how desires are shaped. And the more ways to shape our desires, I mean, there's just so many ways to shape our desires. I can't possibly speak to them right now, but let me just give us a few, like, general ways that we can shape our desires. So, I'll go back to story. Our desires are shaped by the stories we love and by the story we think that we're living in. And I mentioned earlier that we can receive the love of God through all kinds of ways outside of this building, through relationships and through beauty of creation and through a piece of music that just awe and wonder, right? We, We can experience God in all of those ways. And that's absolutely true. But the way to discern whether or not what it is you're experiencing is God or not, whether or not that's Jesus loving you or just yourself loving you, uh, is being familiar with God as he's revealed in the person of Jesus and in the scripture. Knowing the biblical story will not only give us a context for life, it gives us an amazing vision for what life can be like. So like when we encounter Jesus' love in the Bible, his wisdom, his joy, his strength, his humility, and his confidence, he not only shows us who God is like, that's pretty great that he does that, but he shows us what we are meant to be. So whenever you can encounter the story in scripture and in worship and in a sermon and the sacraments, put yourself there in those places. Our desires can be shaped by story, and by community. If you want to get good at working out, join CrossFit or some gym where there's people who are focused on the same outcome, right? If you want to get good at music, join a band or an orchestra. Uh, Be around people who are going to encourage you in that same direction, that same thing. And if you If you want to grow in your desire for following Jesus and living in grace, be part of a healthy church, not only in name, but in participation wherever you can. And by the way, while you're part of a local healthy church, 
Stick with your band, please. Stick with your your CrossFit. Be a healthy, well-rounded person. You don't have to give all that up for the church thing. Following Jesus doesn't replace other good things. It intensifies those other good things. And finally, if you want to grow in desire for the way of God, put yourself in whatever paths you're most likely to meet him. Traditionally, that has meant prayer, of course, and worship. Nature is a, is a traditionally common place throughout the ages of church history where people pray and meet with the living God. Serving others is a place that traditionally we meet God. And the list is almost endless. Ultimately, our desires are shaped by the work of the Spirit and putting ourselves in position to encounter God. And I pray that we would leave this moment not just more full of information, but inspired that the Spirit is ever at work in each of us. We are not in or out, saved or lost, good or bad. We are always becoming. And the question is, who are you becoming? What is your trajectory? Just pray with me. Lord, thank you that we are never done becoming. And thank you that you desire that we become more and more healthy and whole, more like you. We confess that our desires are often skewed and turned in on ourselves. And so many times we're not even sure we really want to desire these things that Paul is talking about or that you're talking about. So I pray for your grace to open us up to your, where you are all over our lives. Expand our vision of your work in the world and in our lives. And Holy Spirit, give us a rich and deep desire to be like you, to be for you, to be with you and with each other in that pursuit. Amen.